I was once an iron soldier, and I've been where the eagles call. I will tell of a shining city, and how she came to fall. My name is Henry, and I'd like to welcome you to Fortress on a Hill. My co-hosts and I are a group of leftist American veterans who scour the news headlines looking for stories related to the military and veteran communities of the U.S. But you're not going to hear most of the typical military tropes here. Here we take those same stories and we clear out some of the cobwebs and bullshit. We ask hard questions of our leaders and demand an end to the militarism that has permeated our society. We have a military budget of $750 billion, three times more than China, and seven times more than Russia. While here at home, American infrastructure and domestic policy languish, especially in the era of Donald Trump. However, Big Don is only the latest in a long line of presidential warmongers and bastards. Our country has lost enough to regime change and military operations the world over, Operations that, by and large, only take innocent lives, or providing no real protection from threats to our country. Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Niger, and the list goes on. It's time for a change. Thank you for being with us. listeners i wish i could tell you that we have some good news for you today but we don't we have four really disturbing headlines to go over and the first one we're going to talk about is trump's apparent affinity and the republicans who back him right republicans in congress their affinity for war criminals they don't just love the military they don't just support our troops they support our troops without exception, right? Uh, unconditionally, the way a mother loves a child, even if some of the military members have committed mass atrocities, mass atrocities. Sometimes, you know, in the case of the soldier in, um, in Afghanistan who, you know, just went door to door in a village killing people, or whether it's this new guy, Navy SEAL named Gallagher, who allegedly uh, shot civilians in Iraq, um, captured a ISIS fighter who, 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 who quit, which makes him a non-combatant, and then killed him with a knife and then held a reenlistment ceremony over his body and tweeted it out or, or, or texted it out to all his friends, which is, which is, which is really cute. That's, that's cute. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than, than murder being texted out. Well, Representative Duncan Hunter from California, himself a vet and a monster, mind you, and a monster, right, and who does not deserve our sympathy, 
he gave an interview on a podcast, and I have to almost respect his brutal honesty because he let us know who he is, and he let us know who the Republican Party are today. He said he supports Gallagher and thinks that Trump should uh, pardon him, which Trump has said he's considering, uh, which is shocking. He says um, he doesn't care if everything the prosecutor is claiming is correct. He still thinks we should wait for it, quote, give him a break. Give him a break. War criminal. Gallagher. Give him a break. Oh, I know what you're thinking. He probably got turned in signs up. Turned in by some pussies in the media, right? Turned in by his own SEAL team. And now Trump is considering pardoning him. And Representative Duncan Hunter of California says, I don't care if everything he did wrong is true. I don't care if the prosecutor's case is perfect. I think he should get a break anyway. Get a break. Talk about a ridiculous term for a war criminal. So Duncan Hunter also said, quote, uh, I probably killed thousands of civilians, hundreds or thousands, he goes back and forth, uh, while I was an artillery officer in Fallujah. Interesting. He might have. He might have. Uh, would it be a war crime if he did so? That's arguable. It would be hard to put it on the artillery officer. It would probably be more of a broader war crime that the United States you know, uh, wielded against the civilian populace, what was left of it in Fallujah. But the, the, the confidence with which he said, I also killed thousands of civilians, you know, I shouldn't, what are you, but you to hold me accountable next? The answer should have been, yes, tell us more. Tell us more so we can investigate. I mean, to admit, I don't even necessarily think he's correct about what artillery did in Fallujah. We could argue about that. I think most civilians had left. I'm not saying we didn't kill hundreds and maybe thousands, but I think his statement that his personal battery that he commanded killed thousands of civilians is, is, is a massive overestimation but regardless of that the confidence which with this guy with which this guy just like admits to potential war crimes and and, and unabashedly defends a, a, an accused slash known uh war criminal in 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 chief gallagher is is staggering and, I, and i'll end with this you know trump is considering pardoning gallagher think about the precedent that would set there's no longer such a thing as an American war criminal if Trump does this. What he's saying, essentially, is that Americans are above the law. All military members are honorable, regardless of their actions, regardless of their inhumane actions, they will face no consequences. And I will tell you this. You guys can comment on this because this is where I'm going to end. That goes against everything I was taught as a soldier and an officer. I was taught that you ignore illegal and immoral orders. I was taught that there are rules of law, that there are Geneva Conventions, and that what makes America great, and this is what I was taught, what makes America great is that even if our foes don't follow the Geneva Conventions, we do. But I don't think we can say that anymore. What do you guys think? No, I well, I mean, and I, I don't know that we can ever truly say that, but... Uh, that is something that we all we it's bragging rights you know we have we're supposed to say we have the the finest military in the world and the most professional military in the world I'm sure you guys have heard that one um, and it's really important to point out here that like for for Gallagher's situation Gallagher's a Navy SEAL I, I <laughs> at one point I considered enlisting to become a Navy SEAL and 
I remember hearing a lot during in those pamphlets and briefings and such about how professional they were, how, you know, that they would never take an innocent life, you know, ad nauseum. So why is this acceptable to the non-Trump Republicans? Why is this, why do, are they finding it okay um, for him to go that far with this? Is it just that they're that terrified of Trump? I think you raised an important question, and I just want to make two points about it. Number one, I think the Republicans have staked their legitimacy on being pro-military. And they have such a blind view of what pro-military is that they'll back anything an American soldier does, including fucking war crimes, right? The second thing is this. Listen, I wrote some interesting and controversial things about John McCain when he died. And in retrospect, I was probably too easy on him out of a sense of sentimentality. Because John McCain was an extraordinarily flawed right-wing Republican in, in the aggregate. But here's what I think. The Republicans will miss him now. Because I do believe, I really believe, and I hope I'm right, that McCain would not have put up with this shit. And the reason I say that is because when all the Republicans supported torture during the George W. Bush administration, it was McCain who said, no, torture's bad, I was tortured, we shouldn't do it. And I, I wish there was a voice in the Republican Party, because I don't see one. Tell me if I'm wrong. I don't see one that's willing to step up and be the moral beacon and say, look, I don't like Democrats, but they're right on this issue. You know, that takes political courage. And I just I I think the Republican Party has become so right wing that they don't have that kind of political courage anymore. Yeah, I, I feel like um, everybody has hitched their star to Trump's wagon and to this idea of like, like you said, you know, that we're just this crazy pro-military stance right now kind of everywhere but especially with the republicans and nobody really wants to say those kind of things because they're afraid of what their constituents are going to say or whatever but well you, uh, you remember what john boehner said when he gave a when he gave a um, interview he said there is no more republican party there's a trump party and that's it yes yeah and he was right and a lot of people got frustrated about him saying that but seriously i mean nobody i i think to your question, like, yeah, I mean, there, there has to be some accountability, right? And the, yes, we're America, and we think we can go around the world and do whatever we want. And, but, but at least, you know, for a while, we were thinking, okay, like, we, we have to uphold some of these conventions, you know, that the rest of the world agrees to. And if, if we're just going to pardon people for doing things that are blatantly wrong, and we're going to make all these excuses as to why, you know, we're never going to be able to say that we're, we're I mean, we, we already are on really thin ice as far as the moral high ground goes, if we ever, ever were. But, you know, now it's if that if, if we are just going to pardon people for legitimately killing civilians, uh, there's no we don't have a leg to stand on anymore. And there, there's been numerous four stars that have come out retired ones i know martin dempsey did came out and said that it was wrong so there was some military leaders willing to step into that space yeah and, and let's remember where martin dempsey comes from he's not perfect but he's one of my favorite chiefs of staff of all time um he he taught english literature at west point when he was a major and that may sound irrelevant but i'm telling you a guy like that is more of an intellectual and moral compass than your average general. 
And I think it's important to recognize that we do need intellectuals. We do need people of principle uh, in our in our military, that the continuing education is important because to me that that kind of defines part of the reason why Martin Dempsey would come out against it, come out against pardoning war criminals, because he thinks that he thinks we are better than that. And we are or we ought to be, because here's the thing. We don't take an oath to a specific president or to a specific general or to a specific law. We take an oath to the Constitution. We were taught that you ignore illegal and immoral laws. And the, the reality is what Gallagher did is illegal and immoral. What he allegedly did is illegal and immoral, and it's unacceptable. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think it's uh, – <sighs> I wouldn't. I don't know about how important, but I think it's important. We had some contrast in here about prisoners and long sentences for for certain crimes. And I'm speaking, of course, about uh, John Walker Lind, the notorious American Taliban, who just recently was released after 17 years in prison. Now, for for those who don't know, and I, I didn't know, and I, I knew I could connect the name with the American Taliban, but I didn't really know anything about him before I started looking into this and. He left the United States in early 2000 to go study Arabic and consequently became a devout Muslim. And then he later, earlier in 2001, joined the Taliban to fight against the Northern Alliance. All of this happened months and months before September 11th took place. Now, in November of 2001, he was found among a group of Taliban fighters whose commander had surrendered to the Northern Alliance. And hours after he was interrogated, uh, his fellow prisoners, it was at a prison there where he was captured, l staged a revolt in which some 500 were killed, which included the first American casualty of the Afghan war, um, CIA operations officer Johnny Michael Spann. Lind was shot in the leg during the fighting, and he was only one of 86 people that actually survived it. Now, Lynn's parents only knew of his whereabouts when CNN aired an interview with him shortly after his capture. And he wasn't notified, a, a American citizen, he wasn't notified of his rights or anything like that when all this happened. During 50 days of detention, U.S. authorities sometimes had Lynn blindfolded, naked, and bound to a stretcher with duct tape. Um, although his family had retained a defense attorney and told U.S. authorities about it, Lynn knew nothing about his attorney for more than a month. Because of that failure, he only ended up being charged with two of the original 10 ter terrorism charges that were going to be levied by the Bush administration. And in an agreement with the Justice Department not to share his story or any details about the torture he received, he only received a, a light sentence of 20 years. Now, Lynn's father wanted to portray his son as a, a spiritual, well-intentioned young man who was entirely unjustly labeled as a terrorist. Quote, like Ernest Hemingway during the Spanish Civil War, John had volunteered for the army of a foreign government battling an insurgency. End quote. Um, his decision was rash, rash and blindly idealistic, but it wasn't sinister or traitorous. Now, there's been a huge uproar since his release about him being released, and while I find plenty of fault on his end, he very much seems to be a victim of that early time following 9-11. Um, I did find an article referencing a letter he sent to NBC News that says he still supports global jihad, which uh, to include groups like ISIS, 
So there is some level of continuing threat for him, but I, I found no evidence that he himself committed violent acts or has ever threatened violence against America or Americans. So doing a straight apples to apples comparison wouldn't make much sense here, but I think it's good to draw some conclusions. These other men, these other war criminals that President Bush wants to draw, they all swore an oath to the United States that they would be professional, above board, and that they represented their country. Mr. Lynn did not. He went entirely on his own because he believed in the cause that he was going to fight for. Um, earlier, you heard the words from his dad pleading with the government and then President Obama to commute his sentence, which President Obama chose not to do. Um, and like I just mentioned, his father also pointed out that if not for the events of September 11th, would anything have happened to him? Probably not, considering the Bush administration sent a quote-unquote humanitarian grant of $43 million to the Taliban in May of 2001, and they also welcomed the Taliban's efforts to eradicate um, opium poppy cultivation. So it doesn't sound like they were... It doesn't sound like they really gave a shit about him until he became the American Taliban. But would his pleas get heard in a Trump presidency? Not no, but hell no. Absolutely not. I mean, look, John Walker Land is, is not my favorite person. You know, he, he's not. I'm, I'm not. This isn't a defense of Lynn. This is a defense of due process that I'm about to make. I think his father is correct that John Walker Lynn didn't go to Afghanistan to fight America. He went to Afghanistan to support uh, a nascent caliphate against an insurgency or at least against a rebel movement known as the Northern Alliance. Had there been no 9-11, he would have committed no crimes against Americans. And arguably, he still committed no crimes against Americans because while he may have been a combatant for a foreign country, he wasn't working with al-Qaeda Central to attack the homeland. He was fighting for the citizens' army or the farmers' army of the Taliban. And I'm not a fan of the Taliban. But this is ridiculous that he served 17 years in prison because Nazi officers who were captured in World War II, even SS officers in many cases, served far less than 17 years. Wow. In, case, in fact, most were released at the end of the war or within a year of the end of the war. And so what to me what John Walker Lind is is he's a propaganda tool of the Bush administration, just like Pat Tillman was, just like Jessica Lynch was. But with John Walker Lind on the negative side, he became this villain. He became this overarching evil, the American Taliban, because I really believe he was nothing more than a prop, nothing more than a propaganda tool for the Bush administration. And of course, of course, Obama didn't didn't pardon him because Obama knew if he did that, the Democrats would look weak on foreign policy. So this guy spent 17 years in prison. But for what charge exactly? OK, taking up arms against the United States. Maybe, but I mean, just because he was a citizen of the United States but ended up on the wrong end, what do we do to the Confederates after a war, uh, Civil War? Almost nothing. Almost nothing. Even the president of the Confederacy did a few years in jail. Period. You want to talk about treason? Now that's treason. Absolutely. No, it, it, it doesn't. It makes, it makes no sense. And <clears throat> I thought the, the, uh, the quote about Ernest Hemingway was interesting. You know, we've had lots of, lots of Americans go and fight for foreign countries on behalf of the other foreign country, yet this didn't happen to them. No, and you think about all the kids that uh, went and fought against ISIS, 
like with the mm-hmm. Peshmerga. And you're like, and, you know, the, the government always said, oh, if they get caught, you know, we're going to have to charge them because they're not allowed to do that or whatever. But, like, those kids didn't really get in trouble. I mean, a couple of did in England, but it's the same thing. It's just, like you said, Danny, he was a prop, and everything was about making him look bad, even though nothing he did really was that bad. Everything was, you know, it, it was just his own personal journey. And that's where he ended up because he felt like he, he wanted to be there to help the Afghanis. But uh, we didn't care about that. Yeah, no, a mature country, a mature country would have treated him like a prisoner of war. A mature country would have let him go once he was no longer a threat. Right. You know, that, that that's what that, that that's what that's what a that's what a realistic down to earth, humble country would have done. They would have followed the rules of war. They would have given the kid a break at some point. They would have realized that he really wasn't a major threat to the United States. And I don't like the kid. I don't like what he says about global jihad. But I don't like what a lot of Nazi soldiers did. And we released millions of them within the year of the surrender. Well, if there is no surrender, then we have to decide how long is long enough to hold these kids. I mean, not just the American Taliban, John Walker Lim, but I'm saying, like, all the guys at Guantanamo, for example, like, most of whom weren't international terrorists, but rather were, like, leaders in the Taliban. Like, when is long enough? Are we really going to, and I've written an article that we are, uh, are we really going to maintain these prisoners, whether it's in Iraq or Afghanistan or Guantanamo Bay, indefinitely? Are we we really going to, like, get hospice care at Guantanamo to, like, you know, to ease these people into death without ever having seen a trial. I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's, um, it makes me extraordinarily uncomfortable about my nation. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with, allies and supporters means the world to us but we can't do all the work we need you to share an episode of ours with someone anyone who you think might be affected by it maybe a a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the u.s wages in their name advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment that the military creates for minorities and inflicts on them around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're very blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters, helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I probably can't think of right now. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Matthew Ho, Will Arenz, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, 
and Matt the Virgin Slayer. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if you'd like to contribute and Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Kropinski did a really awesome job making our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Make sure you check on the site there for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Well, so we have this guy, uh, Daniel Everett Hale, who he's a former um, Air Force Intel analyst. Then he went to work for the NGA which is the National Geospatial Agency. They deal with a lot of the um, they deal with a lot of the satellite imagery and imagery intelligence and that kind of thing. Um, after he got out, it's crazy. We were in we were in the military at the same time. So, um, but he he uh, was at a book signing when with Jeremy Scahill when Jeremy was promoting his book Dirty Wars, and uh, they were kind of talking just about what they were dealing with. And, uh, you know, he was saying that he was mentioning that he was working and he had, he was working in those programs and they kind of developed a relationship and Hale ended up giving him, allegedly, he ended up giving him uh, a couple of thumb drives worth of information. And, um, that's, he helped, which helped him write his book, Assassination Complex. So he's facing up to 50 years in prison for this uh act because they're charging him with each individual thing so yeah he could get up to 50 years in jail which is just which would be the it would be the longest that we would ever try to charge anyone under the espionage act uh, i mean right now reality winners already in that because she is five years of prison that's because she pled uh guilty so it's just really, I don't know. I, I'm really frustrated about this because for me, everything in that book was, it was hard for me to read personally because it was stuff that I had been a part of. But it, he did a really good job of laying out everything. And he had, he had written kind of a foreword in the book where Daniel is talking, well, I mean, the unnamed source at this point. Um, and he just kind of mentioned, like, saying why he felt like it was necessary to talk about these things. And for me, it was, it was spot on. It made absolute sense to me. But unfortunately, in espionage cases, they can't, nobody can talk about their reasons for why they did what they did. Like, that's not a valid legal defense. So I think that's part of the reason why it's, so, it's become so easy for people to prosecute leakers under this because there isn't really a defense against uh, there there's not really a defense against what the prosecutors have to say so it still that still doesn't make sense to me do you, is it do we know any more about why why it is or is it just that that was the way the law was written that it you just you just don't have a defense it seems that's just the way the law was written you know but like we talked about earlier is written in 1917 during world war one and people just, and it was just, you know, this, I guess it was, it seemed like it was just this consensus of, well, if you're spying against us, you can 
be charged under this. And it wasn't until, you know, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers when they were trying to charge him and the Washington Post under the Espionage Act. And it didn't stick back then, but we've been able to make it stick now under the, under the last, like, 20 years. I do think it's important to back up and mention what you said, which is, you know, as a historian, when I, when I hear about the Espionage Act, I like to understand the context and moment, like national moment that it was passed. And so there were two acts. There was the Espionage Act and then there was the Sedition Act. Now, the Sedition Act was eventually overturned as unconstitutional because the Sedition Act essentially said that if you spoke against America, you, you, that was unconstitutional during a time of war so, or that was illegal during a time of war. So it essentially just obviated the entire premise of the First Amendment. But the, but the other relic, relic is the right word, the other relic of that period was this espionage act. Now, it hasn't been used a whole lot, and it especially hasn't been used a whole lot against journalists or against leakers, right, sources who leak documents to the press. It, it, it's rarely been used for that. And in cases where it was attempted, as in 1971 with Daniel Ellsberg of the Pentagon Papers, uh, many times the government lost. Okay? They either lost or they dropped the charges knowing they would lose in the case of you know, Daniel Ellsberg. And then it's, it's another 11 years before it's used again against a leaker. And then comes Obama. And we all wanted to like him. We all admire things about him, I think. The reality of Barack Obama is that he prosecuted nine leakers under the Espionage Act, which was more than all other presidents combined since 1917. So what did Obama do? He opened a crack in the door that Trump has been able to fucking slam through with a big boot. And, and, I, and I think what, what we're observing now is, is Obama declared a war on the press specifically war on leakers. And now I think what we have is Trump has declared war on the press. I and mean, he calls them the enemy of the people. He calls them fake news. He calls the New York Times fake news. He says they're the enemy of the people. I mean, this is dangerous shit. Now, you brought up Daniel Hale. Now, Daniel Hale is important because he's one of the sources that's been charged, just like Reality Winter, just like Chelsea Manning. Okay, this is important. Daniel Ellsberg before him. Um, what's interesting about the Assange case that's ongoing, we talked about this on a previous pod, is that Assange isn't the leaker, he's the leak E, right? He's the recipient of the leak from Chelsea Manning. And so to prosecute Assange under 17 counts, which is what he's being charged, 17 uh, counts of violation of the Espionage Act, is essentially saying that we can now no longer just prosecute leakers. We can prosecute the journalists who publish what they leak. And, and, and I think that that is incredibly dangerous. And even though you might not like uh, Chelsea, not Chelsea, uh, Julian Assange, even though you might not think he's a great guy, you might not like what he did during the 2016 election. I don't care what you think. He's a publisher. And if the, the rest of America's media doesn't stand shoulder to shoulder with him, they will regret it someday because it's like that quote during the Holocaust. When they came for the socialists, I didn't do anything because I wasn't a socialist. When they came for the, you know, the, 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 the labor workers, I didn't do anything because I wasn't a labor worker. When they came for the Jews, you know, I, I didn't do anything because I wasn't a Jew. And, so, and then they came for me and there was no one left to defend me. And I, and I think that's the, the, the sort of philosophical approach that like the Times and the Post should be taking to this Assange case. I wasn't planning, listeners, on talking about Egypt this week. I, I had no particular reason to. I mean, I've written plenty of articles about Egypt's awful dictatorship. Um, I've criticized 
al-Sisi for his military coup, for his massacre of protesters, for his mass incarceration, human rights abuses, and death penalty show trials. But I got to thinking about Egypt again this week when Mohamed Morsi, the duly elected president, still president officially of Egypt, the first duly elected president in Egyptian history and the first duly elected Arab president, okay, outside of Lebanon in history. It's a big deal. Whether you like Morsi, whether you like the Brotherhood, whether you think he went too far, didn't go far enough. What Morsi was, was a moderate Islamist, a moderate, nonviolent, non-jihadi Islamist. His Muslim Brotherhood, Trump has tried to declare it a terrorist organization, but the State Department and his own Pentagon said, no, the Muslim Brotherhood doesn't rise to the level of being a, a terrorist organization. We're not going to do it. I mean, shit, we made the IRA a terrorist organization, and they barely even killed civilians on purpose. But we're unwilling to make the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. They must have good reasons. And the reality is the Muslim Brotherhood is much more political than it is military organization. Well, Morsi, who has been in prison for six years since he was overthrown in a coup in 2013, an illegal coup that America said nothing about. Since then, he's been in prison. He's been treated terribly. He's been in isolation most of the time. He has not received the adequate treatment for his very serious diabetes. And he dropped dead in his cage that he was being held at during his third of four different trials. He's already been sentenced to life in prison, but they just keep bringing him out to charge him for something else in order to further suppress his supporters and further uh, make it clear that Egypt is not a place for dissent. It is not a place for press freedom. It is not a place for an opposition. And there hasn't been a word from Donald Trump. Not a word. No one said, hey, Maybe we shouldn't support and sell the second most arms, right, of any direct grant of military aid to Egypt. Maybe we shouldn't say he's doing a, quote, tremendous job and that he's a great president. Don't you love President Donald hyperbole Trump? I mean, that's all he does. But he says, Morsi's doing a fantastic job. He's a great president. Well, Morsi just made himself dictator for life, okay? He essentially changed the Constitution through like a 98% fucking fake vote that says he can be president until 2030, which is basically forever, Okay. Uh, Al-Sisi, I should say. Trump doesn't say a word. In fact, when Xi Jinping of China did the same thing, he said, and it was under, it was recorded at like a, a campaign or a rally of his uh, base, he said, Xi Jinping just made himself president for life. I think that's great. He's doing a great job. Maybe we should do that in our country. Maybe we should consider doing that in our countries. And he's, he's joking, but he's not joking. He's, that's a trial balloon. You understand? It's an intellectual trial balloon that he's throwing out there just to, just to make it so we're used to hearing crazy. You know, just to lower our threshold of crazy or, or, or raise it, I should say, so it doesn't seem so weird when he does it next time. Bottom line, um, Egypt is one of the worst, according to the ACLU and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, one of the worst uh, dictatorships with one of the least amounts of press and dissent freedom in the entire world. And they are proud allies of the United States, proud allies of Donald Trump. Do we have no decency? Do we have no decency as a country? Because I'm starting to think we don't believe in anything except power. It's really interesting when you think about the uh, when you think about the revolution back in 2011, and we were looking at that as in America as such a you know big thing. Like that was one of the biggest things to come out of the Arab Spring was this big uh, Egyptian revolution and all the people in Cairo. And everyone, you know, they were just like, oh, this is going to be great. 
And the Brotherhood won because they they were really, like you said, they were a political organization. They were really organized. They knew how to get the vote out and do all these things when a lot of the other groups were kind of uh, starting from scratch. So it wasn't really, uh, they end up winning. But like you said, he was pretty moderate. And then the military was like, well, fuck you. <laughs> There's no way we're going to let you you do that because the military has so much power in Egypt. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of people don't, don't like realize the Egyptian military, you know, it's not like the American military, the Egyptian military owns a lot of things and they own a lot of land in Egypt. And so they have a vested interest in maintaining a control there. So it was so easy for them to make up some bullshit when the protests happened and pin it all on Morsi and say, oh, look at how bad this government is. We need to take it over and just go right back to the same government they had had since they got released, basically, from, well, since Nasser died, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the bottom line is that um, Egypt today is right back where it was in 2011, maybe worse than it was under Mubarak. Mubarak was in charge since, what, 1981 or whenever it was that um, his predecessor was, was murdered or assassinated. The reality is America is allied with three of the most repressive countries in the world, or at least in the Middle East. Egypt, which is a military dictatorship. Saudi Arabia, which is a, a theocracy, a royal theocracy, one of the last absolute monarchies on the planet, if not the last one. And then Israel, which is an apartheid state. Now, some people get upset when I put Israel in that group, but I, I mean, I think in terms of the oppression of the Palestinians, they, they do belong in the conversation. But the reality is Egypt, for all the hope and all the dreams and all the Twitter and Facebook revolutions we heard about, in the end, the Egyptian revolution fizzled out into a new military dictatorship and America did almost nothing about it. Obama at least said a few things like towards the end, like that he thought Sisi was, you know, um, was a bad guy and maybe he was going to cut some of the military aid. But even he took a very relatively... Uh, light stand on it and now the thing is you've got a president today who he really likes authoritarians whether it's xi jinping whether it's vladimir putin whether it's bolsonaro the fucking lunatic in brazil or whether it's you know fuck kim jong-un or in this case al sisi look this <laughs> this is a wave of right-wing populist autocracies across the world and trump has to be figured as among that group as, as a leader in that group so it should actually come as no surprise to us that he supports uh you know abdul fatah al-sisi and his military government well what really concerns me for the future like for the next president or the next republican candidates is you know the bar has been lowered so much for what they're allowed to do, what they're allowed to say, and who they're allowed to support. And so, like, at some point, there has to be a reckoning, right? There has to be some people that are willing to be back up and be like, wait a minute, you know, we're Americans, and if we want to say we support these ideals of America, then we need to stop doing these things. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like anybody has the courage to do that right now besides like Justin Amash, but even then he's only doing that right now, you know, and who knows how long he'll be able to keep that pressure up. So it's, there's just no, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of daylight for people. And it just makes me really sad to see that 
the bar continually gets lowered and nobody wants to call it out. You know, last thing for me on this is kind of on your point, Keegan. I mean, I'm not a proponent of like George W. Bush era document, you know, democracy promotion at the, the point of a bayonet. I think it's a bad idea. I think it doesn't work. I think it's often counterproductive and has a lot of backlash. That does not mean I think America should have no, that America should have no international values or no international standard on human rights. I think that a truly strategic and prudent foreign policy finds a middle ground between realistic restraint, in other words, not trying to do too much, not trying to create democracies in our, in our own image, but also some grounding in human rights, where we're willing to say, where we feel obliged to say that, no, we do not approve. We do not approve of genocide in Cambodia. We do not approve of Darfur. We do not approve of, you know, you name the Bosnian, the Bosnian human ethnic cleansing. I, I think that it's, it's, it's reasonable to expect that the United States shouldn't be all one or all the other. It can be both. And I think a truly prudent foreign policy, again, would be, would be grounded in restraint, but would also say, look, the United States does choose on its own to associate with, buy weapons, or send weapons to, send aid to countries that have reasonable human rights records. I, if we want to have a good reputation on the Arab street or just the global street, we better start giving a shit about our own purported values, and we better start doing it fast because we're creating terrorists fast that we can kill them. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song I hope you'll pay attention I will not